He was nearing the end of his life. He was nearing the end of his life and ministry on the earth. He was heading to the cross. He had made up his mind. He was going to continue on with the plan of salvation. And Jesus said these words. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Therefore the people who, excuse me, then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Friends, what happened on that day? What happened? Were there two separate events that took place at the same time? Did it thunder or did God speak from heaven through an angel? What's very interesting is that there were people in one crowd, but they heard two different things. The question is, what made the difference and why? Why did one, some people hear one thing and other people hear another? The answer is that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Friends, tonight you're either going to hear one of two things. You're either going to hear the voice of a man booming through a microphone and and just making noise, or you're going to hear the voice of God to your soul. How many of you want to hear the voice of Jesus tonight? Amen. Amen. Let us ask him for just that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we are sojourning in this earth. We are but strangers here, and heaven is our home. And the children of Israel, when they left the the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and they were wandering in the desert, Lord, when you rained down manna from heaven, they went out to collect their food, and they said, Mana, what is it? And Lord, we come tonight opening your word, the bread of life, and we ask, what is it? What is it that you would have for us to hear? Open our hearts, Lord. We pray that the message that we would hear would not be from a man, but that it would be from the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. May he speak loud and clear, and we pray that it would resonate and that we would respond. We love you, Lord. Send your Holy Spirit to help us discern this spiritual item of your holy word, we pray in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen. Just to quickly review, we're going to examine the message, a message from Jesus this evening. You're going to find that it's a, a simple message. It has just three parts. But the Lord has a special message for us tonight. Tonight we are examining Jesus' solution to the problem of Laodicea. We're going to examine the three solutions that he gives in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. As we see this together, and you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles with me, we're going to have the verses on the screen, a majority of the verses on the screen, uh, for the sake of time. But I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. How many of you brought your swords this evening? All right, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now just to review, to catch us up to where we are now, so far, we have talked about, uh, so far we have talked about, we have discovered together that Jesus, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, had a message for John to relay to the seven churches in Asia Minor. 
seven of the many Christian churches. And these messages did not only apply for the Christians then in the first century, but they actually applied prophetically to God's church down through time, each church representing a time period that God's church would go through all the way until the end of time. So we see that it makes sense that the last church on the list would represent God's last day people, amen? And the last church on the list is none other than the Laodicean church. Now, this is the church that represents us as God's last day remnant people. We're going to talk about uh, our understanding of this and how it grew as a people on Friday night, and you're not going to want to miss that. Now, we saw together on Sunday night that Jesus describes the church of Laodicea as saying, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But he says, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We learned that Jesus drew a stark contrast to the physical reality of their, their riches because Laodicea was a wealthy city, the Wall Street of the Middle East at the time. But he was saying, in spite of your physical riches, you're spiritually poor. Jesus said that you're blind. Interestingly enough, Laodicea had a medical school and a world-renowned ophthalmologist, an eye doctor. Not only that, they manufactured eye medication for the world, yet Jesus said, in spite of this, you're spiritually blind. And it didn't stop there. Laodicea was also spiritually naked. And it was uh, not by coincidence, but Jesus gave them a striking explanation of their spiritual status because they actually manufactured black wool garments and supplied them to the Middle East. So Jesus was directing them to their problem, but praise God that when Jesus points out the problem, he doesn't leave us there, amen? He supplies the solution. And tonight we're going to discover just what that solution is. I'm excited about this evening's message. Now remember, Laodicea's greatest problem is not that they're wretched, it's not that they're miserable, it's not that they're poor or blind or naked, but the dilemma that the Laodicean church is in is that they don't even realize it. This is the problem that they're facing. This is the greatest challenge. And friends, we have the tendency to think that a, a strong message doesn't apply to us. Isn't that right? We tend to think that it applies to someone else, and it's all too easy to think that we're okay when we're actually not. And this is the message that Christ wants to get through to us. We think that it may apply to those around us. I'll never forget, I was about 11 years old, and my parents and I were driving from Fairfield, California, back home to Angwin, California. And it was about an hour's drive. We were in the city of Fairfield, and it was my mom in the front passenger seat, and my dad driving, and my best friend Scotty and I in the back. And uh, we pulled out onto the road, and it was in the middle of the city, and it was slow. Praise the Lord, it was slow. But we said, hey, look at that guy going the wrong way. And then a few seconds later, we said, hey, there's another, another one. Oh, wait a minute. We're going the wrong way. <laughs> what are we doing? The Bible says in Proverbs 14, verse 12, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And praise the Lord that that wasn't literally fulfilled on that day. Amen? But it's all too easy spiritually to think that we're all right, 
to think that we're going in the right direction when we're actually going in the opposite direction of where we should be going. It's all too possible for us to think we're okay when we're dangerously driving in the wrong direction, so to speak. You may be wondering, can I ever really know if I'm going in the right direction? That I'm in a saving relationship with Jesus? Is there such thing as true assurance of eternal life? Friends, absolutely. Absolutely. And that is such an important question that we're taking one whole sermon to address it, and we're preaching it twice on Sabbath. We're going to discover it twice. Um, And don't miss that this Sabbath. Safe and secure or not so sure. Uh, The Lord would not have his people wondering if they're saved. He wants us to have the blessed assurance that we are safe in Christ. Amen? And we can praise God for that. Jesus tells us plainly that we are spiritually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The Savior doesn't just point out the problem and praise God that he supplies the solution. Now, I just want to invite you to look at Revelation 3, verse 17 with us. Uh, Revelation 3, verse 17, if you're there in your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. It's up on the screen as well for the sake of time once again. But there the Bible gives descriptions, and Jesus actually gives some adjectives about the church of Laodicea. And I want you to count them with me. Are, Are you ready? All right. He says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. All right, now we're going to go to verse 18 and count how many solutions Jesus gives us. Are you ready? I don't know if you're ready. Are you ready? All right, praise the Lord. Let's go. I counsel you to buy from me, what? Gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not appear or be revealed and that you may anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now let me ask you, why didn't Jesus supply the solution to being wretched or miserable here? Wretched, miserable, victorious. It's a message you're not going to want to miss. The Lord actually gives us the solution somewhere else in his holy word, and we're going to discover it together, and you are not going to want to miss it. Praise God that Jesus supplies the solution to every single one of our problems. Amen? And then we praise him for what a good God he is. Can anyone tell me what this is a picture of? Rocks? Okay. Anyone else? What is this? You're actually right. It's rocks. Anyone want to try to be a little more specific? Fossils? Good guess. Gold? Anyone else? It's quartz, and quartz is often found around what? Around gold. This is actually gold ore. This is what gold looks like. This rock contains gold in it. And this is what gold looks like before it is thrown in a fiery furnace and all of the other rock and dross, which it's called, is melted away, and all that is left is pure, precious gold. The question comes, what does spiritual gold represent? What does gold represent? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 tell us, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your, what? Faith 
being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So we see that the Bible actually compares our faith to gold. Can you see that? Isn't that clear? So the Bible compares our faith to gold. Ellen White echoes this in many places, but notice just two of the following quotes with me. She says in Christ's Object Lessons, page 158, the gold tried in the fire is what? Faith that works by love. Friends, the gold that Jesus wants to offer us is faith that is motivated, that is moved, that is, that is actuated by love. In reality, any faith that's not actuated by love is worthless. Now, look at this other quote with me, the next quote that I want you to notice. Testimonies to the Church, volume 2, page 36. The gold mentioned by Christ, the true witness, which all must have, has been shown to me to be faith and love combined. And love takes the precedence of faith. Let me ask you, why would Ellen White say that love takes the precedence of faith? Why would she say that? You know why? It's really simple, because the Bible says that. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 2 and 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. Here the Bible says, and this is the famous love chapter, one of the most beautiful chapters in Scripture, where Paul is describing this agape love that God the Father has for us and that he wants to instill in us uh, to love the world around us. It says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all, what? Faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love or charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me how much? Nothing. Can you believe that? If someone would even go to, to the stake to die for their faith, but it's not motivated by a love for their Lord, then it's nothing. Ellen White echoes this in the following quote. Listen to this. In Acts of the Apostles, page 318, paragraph 2, she says, No matter how high the profession, he whose heart is not filled with, the love, with love for God and his fellow men is not a true disciple of Christ. In his zeal, he might even meet a martyr's death. Yet if not actuated by love, he would be regarded by God as a deluded enthusiast or an ambitious hypocrite. Strong language, isn't it? But she's just saying what 1 Corinthians 13 says. The faith that we are to have, the faith that God wants to give us is faith that is motivated, that is moved, that is actuated by love. That's the purpose of our faith. That is the entire point. Now, there are actually three characteristics of the gold that Jesus offers us, that he gives in Revelation 3, verse 18. We're going to take a quick look at those three characteristics. The first one is that he says to purchase it. The second is that it is tried in the fire. And the third is that it will make us rich. So first of all, we're told to purchase this gold. Let me ask you, Jesus just said that we are spiritually poor, right? Did we see, read that together? Now, how does someone who's poor buy something? Much the more, how does someone who's poor buy, buy gold, right? How would someone who is poor buy gold? Well, friends, look with me at Isaiah 55, verse 1. 
Isaiah 55 and verse 1, Jesus says, Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Remember, Laodicea had no water source of its own. It plumbed in water from Hierapolis and from Colossa, the hot water, the cold water, and it ended up lukewarm. Jesus says, I'm the solution. Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus has paid the price, amen? Jesus has paid the price to offer us faith that works by love. But friends, just because the price has been paid does not mean that it won't cost us something. Just because the price has been paid does not mean that it is without cost. Though the price has been paid for Christ to be able to offer us that gold, that faith that works by love, it's still going to cost us something. To receive the remedies of our Redeemer, it's going to cost us everything we have and everything we are. We have to give a full surrender to the Lord. Nothing short of all of our hearts and minds will do. Nothing short of this. As the song goes, is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the spirit control. You can only find rest and sweet peace and be blessed as you yield him your body and soul. Friends, it's only, only when we give a complete surrender of our hearts, minds, and our lives to him that we can have that peace and that rest, amen? That faith that works by love. We are told to purchase it, and Christ wants our hearts. The second characteristic of this gold is that it is tried in the fire. Remember, friends, in order for, in order for this, in order for this to turn into this, it must go through what? Fire. It must go through the fire. And friends, remember those three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember from Daniel chapter 3 how they were told to bow down to this golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had made? And they knew that the Bible says that thou shalt not bow down to any gods. We, we are not, the second commandment says not to bow down to any idols. They knew this. They had been trained. They, they loved the Lord so much that they said, we cannot do this and disobey our Lord and our King. And friends, I want to say something. They stood strong for God, but the Lord did not deliver them from the fire. He delivered them in the fire. Amen? Jesus delivered them in the fire. And there's a marked difference. If God allows a trial to come upon us, it's because he wants to walk with us through that trial and help our characters be to become more like Jesus. If the Lord ever allows a trial in our lives, it's for the perfecting of our characters. The challenges, the difficulties that come our way, it's in order for us to more clearly reflect the character and the love of Jesus, amen? It's for our own good. He sends us trials not to cause us needless pain, but to lead us to look to him to strengthen our endurance that we may run the race and finish the race, amen? I love the way that William Penn, the uh, founder of the American state Pennsylvania said it. He said, no pain, no palm. 
no thorns, no throne, no gall, no glory, no cross, no crown. Whatever we have to go through on this earth is nothing compared to the glories of eternity, amen? There's no price too high to spend eternity with our Redeemer, our Savior, and our soon-coming King. I like the way that Ellen White put it even better. Listen to this. Afflictions, crosses, afflictions, crosses, temptations, adversity, and our varied trials are God's workmen to refine us and sanctify us and fit us for the heavenly garner. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie. I know a lot of us were learning the song for the first time earlier tonight. When through fiery trials our pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. If you remember the tune, I invite you to sing it with me. The flame shall not hurt me, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Friends, the only reason that God allows us to go through trials in this life is because his promise is sure. His promises to carry us through are sure, amen? And he will see us through to his kingdom. Fiery trials we go through just cause our characters to shine brighter for Jesus. Friend, I don't know what you're going through tonight. No doubt you may be going through a fiery trial. Maybe things are all fine in your life. But maybe you are going through something just now as we speak and you don't know how you're going to hang on. Friend, remember, always remember that the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. The will of God never leads us where the grace of God cannot keep us. If the Lord allows it, it's because he's going to walk with us through the trial and because it's for our perfection of character, his grace will keep us, amen? The third characteristic of the gold is that it will make us rich. Christ's Object Lessons, page 158, paragraph three, back, I believe. Christ's Object Lessons, page 158, Paragraph three, the gold tried in the fire is faith that works by love. Only this can bring us into harmony with God. We may be active, we may do much work, but without love, such love as dwelt in the heart of Christ, we can never be numbered with the family of heaven. Friends, such love as dwelt in the heart of Christ, we may be thinking, how can I have this love? It's foreign to our very natures. How can we have the love that, that dwelt in the heart of Christ? In Romans 5, verse 5, the Bible gives us an answer. Romans chapter 5, and verse 5, the Bible says, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. Amen? The Holy Spirit is promised to bring the love of God, the same love that dwelt in the heart of Christ, can enter into our hearts. And it's not just something that's artificially put there. No, the love transforms our hearts and our lives. This is a picture of my dad and my mom and I. You can see them just in front of me. And that's my uncle to my left and to the right in the picture. And then very close family friends of mine. And um, they're a, a second family to me, really. We're like one family. 
But uh, you may be wondering where I got my height from. The answer is simple. I actually got my height from my dad. And uh, he had a very tall family on his father's side and a very short family on his mother's side. And uh, his grandfather was six foot eight. Three cousins that were 6'4 and 6'5, brothers, and I met them when I was little, and I remember looking up at them like this, big guys. But anyhow, this, these are my parents, and, and friends, I've been blessed with, I believe they're the best parents on the planet. They're not perfect, but they are as close to it as I think the Lord could give in human form. They love me so much, and when I was young, they loved to give me good gifts, and, uh, you know, even now, my parents love to give me gifts. And I think that any good parent loves to give their child the best things that this world has to offer. Isn't that right? It's instilled. It's natural. It's part of the parental love that God puts in our hearts. And friends, the Bible tells us he uses this love to help us understand how much more he wants to give us the Holy Spirit. In Luke 11, verse 13, the Bible says, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Friends, God is just, he's eager, he's ready, and he's waiting. The angels are poised. They're just waiting for us to pray earnestly for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would fill our lives and bring that love of God that might be shed abroad in our heart. Friends, let me ask, do any of you here think that God is going to reach the world with the three angels' message so that we can go home, so that the world can be prepared through grumpy people? Anybody? Through unfriendly, unkind people? Absolutely not. It's the love of God in our hearts that's going to convict the world. When Jesus was about to go back to heaven, when he was soon to go to Calvary, he told his disciples in John 13, 35, he said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, by your, what? Love for one another. Echoing this beautifully, Ellen White says this in Testimonies to Ministers, page 50. She says, through the church, eventually will be made manifest the final and full display of the love of God to the world that is to be lightened with its glory. Friends, it's the love of God that is going to convert the world to the truth of the gospel. They're going to see a people that love each other so much that it's beyond human, that they must say, this isn't normal. They're so kind. They're so selfless. They love the people around them so much. How is this possible? And we'll be able to share, friend, it's not because of me. It's because of what Jesus is doing in my life. Do you want to be able to have that kind of witness? I sure do. And praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit can bring that love into our hearts. Amen? Christ wants to give us this love and to fill our hearts. And he promises us that through uh, this actuated, this faith that's actuated by love, he promises us that he'll give us the symbol of gold refined in the fire. So we've seen the solution that Jesus offers us in our spiritual poverty. After explaining to the church of Laodicea in verse 17 that they were poor, Christ said that they were blind. Remember, the words of Jesus don't just apply to the first century Christians in Laodicea. They apply to us, his people living in the last days. So what does it mean to be spiritually blind? In the Bible, eyesight represents understanding. One example where we can see this is actually Psalm 119, verse 18, where David said, 
Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now David meant, help me to understand the amazing things in your word. That was his prayer. And that should be our prayer as well, amen? But we see here that the Bible uses eyes as a symbol of understanding. And you know, we actually do this still today in our language. Think about it. When you're explaining something to someone and, and they don't get it at first, and all of a sudden they do, they said, ah, they say, ah, I see, I see. Or sometimes we see caricatures and, and cartoons where there's an individual and they are thinking there and all of a sudden, bing, what goes up above their heads? A light bulb or a light, right? Or when someone starts to understand something slowly but surely, it's, we say it dawns on them, right? Just like the dawn becomes lighter and lighter little by little. Now, it's light that helps us to see, isn't that right? Light bouncing off of objects and entering into our eyes, being interpreted through the rods and cones in our eyes, sending synapses or messages through the synapses in our brain and helping us to understand what's around us. Light helps us to see. It's light that enables us to see. Proverbs 4 verse 18 says that the same is true of spiritual light. It says, but the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. So the question comes, what is it that lights the path of the just? What is it that lights their path? Psalm 119 verse 105 tells us, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So what is the spiritual light that will help us to see on our pathway in this dark world below? What is it? It's the Holy Bible. It's God's word to us, amen? It's the Lord's word. Now, the Bible, the word of God, is the light that enables us to see. But our spiritual problem as Laodicean Christians is not that there's no light around, it's that we're partially blind. Our vision is skewed. We don't see things as they really are. Even with the light of God's word, we cannot understand it unless we receive the ISAV that God offers us. This is a symbol, the ISAV is a symbol, of the wisdom and the grace of God given to us by the Holy Spirit as we study his word. Listen to the following quotation. The ISAV is that wisdom and grace which enables us to discern between the evil and the good and to detect sin under any guise. Friends, as we study the Bible, as we look into the perfect law of liberty, if we genuinely ask the Holy Spirit to bring us the heavenly eye salve, we will see a true picture of our characters. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit will help us to discern, it'll help us to tell and clearly identify what are temptations and dangers and distractions, and he will enable us to keep away from the devil through the strength of Jesus, amen? You know, it's well said that something doesn't have to be a bad thing in order for it to be a distraction. It's well said that good is often the enemy of best. We can ask, what are we doing with our time? It may be good, but is it what's best? Is it what we really need to be doing at that moment? You know, there's um, nothing wrong with Facebook. I want to praise God for Facebook. In fact, I think if it weren't for Facebook, many individuals in here may have not known about uh, the meeting tonight. But as one friend of mine puts it, there's nothing wrong with Facebook 
unless your time on Facebook is keeping your face out of this book. Anything, even a good thing, can be overdone, right? And once it becomes overdone and we spend too much time doing even something that can be a good thing, it becomes a bad thing. And friends, God wants us not to just be doing good things, but the best thing. This life is short, and time is all we really have. Isn't that right? Time is really all that we have, and we should be using it for his glory always. The final problem that Jesus describes the church of Laodicea as having in Revelation 3.17 is that they are spiritually naked. They are spiritually naked. Now, before we take a look at the solution that Jesus offers, we have to really understand the problem. What does it mean that we are spiritually naked? We find another detail in verse 18. Let's examine verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the, what? Shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So Jesus adds a detail. He adds a word, a little word that starts uh, with S-H-A that is what? Shame that the shame of your nakedness may not appear. Does this remind you of any story in Scripture? Genesis, and who was it that was ashamed for their nakedness? It was Adam and Eve. Friends, before we go there, and before we examine the story of Adam and Eve, we're going to establish something from Scripture. We could go to many places, but we'll go to just one together, Isaiah 64, verse 6, to show that robes and clothes in the Bible represent character. Clothes and robes represent character. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. All of our righteousnesses are our best acts that we do. They're really mingled with self unless they come from a heart motivated and actuated by that faith that works by love, that love that God alone can give us through the power of his Holy Spirit. Now to Adam and Eve. We know that they were made in the image of God. And write this verse down if you'd like to study it out later. We don't have time to go there and to examine it. But if you study this out, Adam and Eve were clothed with robes of physical light. We know they were made in God's image. Write down Psalm 104, verse 2. There the Bible says that God is clothed in light. The Spirit of Prophecy also talks about how Adam and Eve at creation before their fall were clothed with garments of light. Now this outward garment of light was a reflection of an inward reality. What do I mean by that? This outward reflection, these robes of light were a symbol of an inward reality that they were walking with God, that they were pure, that they were holy, that they were walking in obedience to God's laws, that they were in God's hands, in communion with him. But we know that something happened. We know that both of them chose to sin and eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God said, do not eat of it. What happened after that, friends? The Bible says in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they did what? Sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. 
continuing on, it says in verse 8, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now, Adam and Eve decided they were going to try to do their best to cover up the shame of their nakedness. Now, this was an outward reflection of the inward reality that they had broken their connection with heaven. And they were going to do everything that they physically could to make up for it by covering themselves with the works of their own hands. Literally. And friends, this is a symbol of self-justification. It's a symbol of self-justification. We're going to see this more clearly as we read on. Verse 9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Verse 10, And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11, God replied, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Here he was before God, and the Lord asked Adam, why did you hide from me? Adam, we had face-to-face communion, but Adam and Eve had severed their connection with God. They had severed their connection with heaven. Continuing on in verse 12, Genesis 3, the Bible says, and the man said, when God asked him, the woman... The woman who thou gavest to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. He just cast the blame, right? What was Adam trying to do? He was trying to justify himself, right? He was trying to justify himself. We just saw that the physical fig leaves were an outward symbol of their attempt to justify themselves, to cover their nakedness, their shame, because they had been separated from heaven. And now... They are doing this on an interpersonal and relational level. He's trying to justify himself. And we see, we read on. The Bible says, And the Lord God said unto the woman, verse 13, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, What? The serpent. The serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Now who made the serpent? God made the serpent, the animal, to be in Uh, in creation, in the field, right? So essentially, Eve was throwing the blame back on God. She was trying to justify herself, blaming it on the serpent, on the devil. He tempted me to do it. You know, the devil cannot force us to sin, amen? The devil can tempt us. He can throw all kinds of temptations and things in our way, but he cannot stain the character. He cannot force us to sin. And praise God for that, amen? Temptations may come in our mind, but we can hit them with Scripture and they can be gone. Amen? Like Martin Luther put it, you can't stop the birds from flying overhead, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. Temptations may come, but we don't have to dwell on the thoughts and we can get rid of them. Eve couldn't say, oh, it was the devil's fault because she made the choice. Adam couldn't blame his wife because he made the choice. Friends, they were seeking to justify themselves. Sometimes when I read this and when I've read this in the past, to be honest, I've, I've wondered to myself, what were they doing? You know, what's wrong with them? How, how could Adam say that, his poor wife? Now, how could Eve do that? What were they thinking? Well, friends, don't we do the same thing? Aren't we guilty sometimes of doing the very same thing, of trying to justify our sins 
of making excuses for the things that we do, our, our shortcomings, our failures, our faults, making excuses and self-justification enters into our lives. But when we do this, it's inhibiting Christ from justifying us by forgiving us with his blood. You see, Jesus wants to be the one to justify us, amen? And in reality, Jesus is the only one who can justify us. See, Adam and Eve's physical nakedness was a symbol of their spiritual nakedness. They had severed their connection with heaven by the unchangeable law of God. Man was condemned to die. Satan said, aha, they're mine. But praise God that as soon as there was sin, there was a savior. Jesus stepped in and he said, no, let man's lot fall on me. I will die in his place. I will die in the sinner's stead. Let man go free. I praise the Lord for our Savior, Jesus Christ, don't you? As soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. God then instructed Adam in the first sacrifice of a lamb. This not only impressed vividly upon his mind that the wages of sin is death, but he gave him hope because the lamb pointed forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the whole world. This first sacrifice was a symbol of just that. We find that their man-made fig leaf garments, the symbols of their self-justification, weren't good enough. They needed heavenly justification. And God gave them a physical symbol of the spiritual reality that they were clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Genesis 3, verse 21 Bible says that unto Adam, after that first sacrifice, it says, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. With the skins of the lamb that Adam had sacrificed, that lamb that represented Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, God clothed Adam and Eve, a symbol of their righteousness in Christ. Amen? The question comes, does the robe of Jesus' righteous character just kind of cover our filthy character? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Jesus' righteousness does not just cover us in our sins, but it cleanses us from our sins. Jesus' righteousness does not just cover us over and God doesn't look at us and, and kind of ignore our sin and say, oh, for Jesus' sake, I'll accept you into my heavenly kingdom. No. Friends, Jesus cleanses us from our sins, amen? He transforms our lives. And this is what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Listen to this. Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. For right now, this is my favorite quote from all the writings of Ellen White. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being. How many human beings? Every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. It continues on. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garments, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. 
Jesus' righteousness does not just cover us up, it transforms us. I love that, how she says that it's his character being interwoven with our own. His thoughts become our thoughts. His will becomes our will. We live his life. This is what it means for the Holy Spirit to be dwelling in our hearts by faith and for Christ to be living out his life within us. Friends, he took our filthy, blood-stained, sinful robes so that he could give us the pure white robe of his righteousness. This was actually illustrated in Scripture in a physical sense. Did you know that? This spiritual reality that Jesus took our our blood-stained, crimson, sinful robes, our, our characters, and he died for our sins, this was illustrated. This was illustrated at the end of his life in a physical way. Look at this with me. Notice this. Isaiah 1 verse 18, a familiar text to all of us. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be what? As white as snow. Though they be what? Red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. They shall be as wool. Jesus makes this promise. Now notice with me what happened at the end of Jesus' life. What happened at the end of his life as as Pilate sent him over to Herod and he said, oh, he's from Herod's jurisdiction. Maybe I can pass him off on Herod. And Herod gave him over after Jesus had no words to say to him. He handed him off to his soldiers. What did his soldiers do? Notice with me. It says, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers and they stripped him and put on him what? A scarlet robe. A scarlet robe. Jesus had a scarlet robe put on him, a physical symbol of the spiritual reality that the sins of the world were being laid on our Redeemer. Our characters, our robes were as scarlet. They are as scarlet, but through Jesus, they can be whiter than snow. Friends, he took our robe. He died for our sins in our place. The reason that he can offer us a robe to cover our shame, the shame of our nakedness, is because he not only bore our sins and our shame on the cross, but he hung naked between heaven and earth. Jesus hung naked between heaven and earth that we might be clothed with the robe of his righteousness. Praise the Lord, amen? Christ was naked and shamed that we might be robed and honored. He hung naked on that cruel cross with a crown of thorns that you could wear the robe of light and the crown of life. Friends, how could we turn from such love? Jesus was crucified on the outside of Jerusalem, outside the city gate, so that we could live inside the new Jerusalem. Jesus gave his all for us. Because of this, he offers us his robe of righteousness, his perfect character, which enables us to walk in God's ways. It transforms our lives. Friends, it wasn't the nails in Jesus' hands. It wasn't the nails in his hands that kept him on that cross. It wasn't the nails in his feet. It was his love for you and for me. He could have called 10,000 angels. He didn't have to give his life But praise the Lord that his love for you and for me was too great for him to come down off that cross. 
He said, I will pay the price. Though I cannot see through the portals of the tomb, I would rather go to hell without them. He would rather go to hell for us than live in heaven without us. He endured what felt like and what, what was complete isolation and separation from God. He endured and felt what sinners will feel, those who reject his mercy, when they are destroyed in the lake of fire. He took that for us that we might enjoy the glories of heaven. And he could not even see through the portals of the tomb. He was willing to cease existence so that we could be saved. Friends, how can we turn from such love? Praise the Lord for our Savior, amen. Praise the Lord for our Savior and our God. When I was a little boy, my mom and my dad, they would ask me, Justin, how much do you love me? How much do you love me? And I'd say, Mommy, and I'd take my little hands. Mommy, I love you this much. Daddy, I love you this much. Friends, when Jesus, in the eyes of the universe, the onlooking universe 2,000 years ago, had his arms outstretched and nailed onto a cruel cross, he was telling the universe, he was telling all of humanity, I love you this much. I love you this much. Friends, how can we turn from such a Savior, amen? He offers us the robe of his righteousness in place of our sinful scarlet robes. Praise the Lord for the gift of our Redeemer, for the solution of the Savior. It was said in more beautiful words than I could write them. I want to share them with you tonight. A French reformer before Martin Luther, named Lefebvre, he said, Oh, the unspeakable greatness of that exchange. The sinless one is condemned that he who is guilty goes free. The blessing bears the curse, and the cursed is brought into blessing. The life dies, and the dead live. The glory is whelmed in darkness, and he who knew nothing but confusion of faith is clothed with glory. Friends, Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserved. He was condemned for our sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was his. Jesus gave his all for you. He gave his all for you. What are you willing to give him tonight? In place of our poverty, he wants to give us that beautiful gold, a symbol of faith that works by love. In place of our blindness, our skewed vision, he wants to heal us so that we can see. And in place of the sinful robes of our character, Jesus wants to give us his righteousness to transform us for heaven and for our homelands. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. In this moment, I'd like to invite you to listen to the words of this song. And as you do, 
respond to the Lord in your hearts. Let him know that you want to receive the gift that he purchased when he died on Calvary. You want to receive that robe of life, the gold that is faith that works by love and the eye salve that he wants to give us. In the silence of this moment, focus on the words of this song and pray to our Lord and Savior, our Father in heaven. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that, we thank you, Lord, that you don't love us because we're valuable, but we're valuable because you love us. We thank you for being willing to surrender your life, even what, what seemed to be your eternal reconnection with the Father, Lord. You were willing on the cross to give up your life eternally for us. And Lord, we cannot but thank you and spend our lives praising you throughout all eternity. How we long for the day when, when we'll be there in the kingdom. Let not a single one of us be missing, Lord. That we may enjoy the glories of eternity with you, learning more and more of the science of salvation, walking and talking with you. Father, we pray that you would keep each one of us in this room faithful. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Lord, when we look at ourselves, we at times don't see how we could be saved. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we won't see how we can be lost. Keep our eyes focused on him. Thank you so much for the solutions of our Savior. Bless us as we go from this place, we pray. Send your angels to walk with us. And may we maintain a a personal atmosphere of reverence and prayerfulness tonight. May we remain connected with you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. Bring us back again tomorrow night, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.